0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome to the podcast my old friend, Christopher McKnight Nichols. Chris is the Wayne Ridger Hayes Chair in National Security Studies and the Professor of History at The Ohio State University. That's right, The Ohio State University. And he's also the author of numerous books. Um, and we invited Chris today to talk about actually his newest edited volume, co edited with David Milne, another friend of mine titled Ideology in U.S. Foreign Relations, New Histories, which actually just won an award from the International Studies Association. So uh, Chris, congratulations on the award, and thanks so much for joining us.
1: Danny, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for caring about the role of ideology in U.S. (laughs) foreign relations and history more broadly, and I look forward to the conversation.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much, man. So why don't we just start from really which is the most basic question, and and we've addressed it on, on different topics, but what is ideology? It's a term that we hear thrown around. Is it the same as ideas? What's different about ideology? And why do we need to study it?
1: Well, that's a big question. Easy question. question. Easy question. Let's start there, right? So, well, we are historians, not philosophers, but we study some philosophy and we – know the history of these sorts of things. So ideology has a long and contested history, just the term itself, that's probably a nice place to start. Um, you know, I, I can do a kind of capsule history of that quickly. It just gestured to a few of the ways that it, the concept has developed over time. It really started with um, the ideologues of the French Revolution. That's that's where we get the term. I think the first use is 1797. Um, and that was sort of uh, construed as a sense of the science of thought, um, aimed at constructing a whole system of ideas that reflected material reality. Uh, Fast forward about 50 years, and you get your kind of Marxist, uh, your first Karl Marx understandings of ideology. Um, You know, in short, it's much more complicated than this, but in German ideology and a few other places, you get a view of ideology's focus, you know, um, as a focus maybe more on as a cover for understanding uh, exploitative systems and capitalists and the structures of society such that people wind up buying into it through ideology, the kind of a bre- a, a obsessive, uh, oppressive kinds of systems that structure how how societies run uh, run how institutions operate um you know here you get also religious ideology as part of that opiate of the masses kind of thinking etc okay this is very broad brushstrokes my friends um then jump forward again one more leap and this is what i what i say in the introduction i think um you know you have a great chapter in the book too um i think current historians are a little bit more althusserian here so Louis, louis Althusser also coming from a French Marxist tradition, shifted the perspective there a bit to a little bit more, in my view, of an attention to language and more of a sense that language um, in ideology, the terms that we use, the kinds of phrases, uh, in fact... um, can be understood as a sort of world-making process through language that does reflect material reality. So it's not that a Marxist view would suggest that that's entirely false, but that there's some false consciousness in that. The sort of Althusserian view, the way that I understand it and articulate it, comes out of, and let me grab a quote while while I'm giving you this so so that we can be um, a bit more particular, um, that he wrote, the human societies secrete ideology as the very element and atmosphere indispensable to their historical Respiration in life, and when you when you talk about what is ideology, you often get these metaphors and language about the corpus and the blood, the body, the beating heart of society, the brain, the structures of knowledge that sort of thing so all right uh, so that 's a quick take there, and I think a, a lot of the chapters in the book and a lot of the ways in which historians who do sort of the intellectual history of U.S. foreign relations and intellectual history more broadly, are very attuned to a kind of linguistic turn. A lot of us are looking at language and how language then is reflected in the thoughts that our historical actors put on paper or articulate in other ways, shapes, and forms. And so, uh, you know, the way that uh, then we talk about it in the book is that ideologies are really – they – set the terms for engagement. They're not static. They shape the ways in which we understand success and failure, as flawed as those understandings might be, um, that they really order and explain the world. And I think that's the key to understanding what an ideology is versus an idea, as you started the conversation here, right? So ideologies are more than ideas. Uh, Ideas are constituent parts of ideologies. Ideologies are about the assumptions and principles that help us organize a really complicated and complex world into something more discernible, right? The infinite options out there. And then ideologies, certainly in foreign policy and politics, uh, whether they're grassroots level or elite policymakers, then help us to understand how we might chart a path uh, in policy terms or in human terms, um, to a different future. And I think that's the essential difference there too. The ideas can be part of that. uh, but when you add up the ideas, the core assumptions, the principles, you wind up with an ideology that pushes that forward. Now, all this has been pretty abstract, but one of the ideologies I chart in the book is about unilateralism. You know, that's something that I've talked a lot about. I've talked a lot about ideologies of isolationism and internationalism in my work. But, you know, one thing that courses through this book that's fascinating is a, an argument about civilizational ideology as being hotly contested in American democracy. Uh, and so that within that, civilization is sort of an idea and a term, but also can embody a much broader set of ideological constructs from white supremacy to versions of capitalism to you know, versions of, of Protestant evangelicalism and, and mission, a whole lot of other things. So uh, that's a long-winded and yet somehow incredibly short way of trying to define uh, ideology here.
0: No, that was wonderful. Uh, that was really great, Chris. Truly fantastic. Here's a question. And I'll just ask it in a basic way. You know, the Marxist claim is ideology emerges from class position. The Mannheimian claim is that emerges from one social position. You have various versions of uh, critical theory isn't the really the right term, but you know what I mean, of critics saying ideology emerges from various racial constructions or capitalism and things like that. Where does ideology come from?
1: Well, one of the things that I think, just talking about the book for a second, that I really appreciate is that it's eclectic and the different authors of chapters, I think, would argue with each other about where it comes from or where they come from. I think – early on and even in near final drafts we were thinking about ideology in the plural ideologies right uh, and that perhaps in the plural that also gets at the fact that that ideologies can come from different sort of subject and class positions different racial positions and in different historical contextual moments I mean I think one of the key presuppositions here which is really basic for us as historians but actually uh, not often uh, there in the sort of political re- uh, record uh, is the is the fact that ideology change so much, that they're so dynamic. Um, you know, so you can pin them down sort of like Peter Novick in his book uh, on objectivity and historical profession. You know, you can pin down questions of objectivity in any given moment, but actually it's it's, it's moving so fast uh, in how people interpret. And I think the same sorts of things apply in terms of where, where ideologies come from, depending on the moment and your focal sort of um, lens, right, as a historian or as a scholar, yeah, I think you'll come up with different answers to that. I'm not deeply wedded to, you know, making one kind of argument there from those different traditions that, that you just pointed out. I mean, I think for me, it's much more interesting to look at from multiple valences or multiple multiple angles at the valences of ideology over time. So, you know, one of the things we tried to do with this project, where it comes from, um, and I've been sort of noodling on this for years, I bet you have too, since reading Michael Hunt's book, um, famous book on ideology and US foreign policy, that, you know, that it's a good book, but it focuses on elite policymakers, it's very much an artifact of the late Cold War. It really doesn't, you know, it it importantly argues that racial hierarchy is critical to understanding the ideologies that have structured US foreign relations and foreign policy, but it doesn't do a lot more than that. And so one of the things that I really wanted um, out of this project was uh, was that to have great scholars, uh, people like you who know their archives, who know their subjects, writing on those subject areas, and in some ways arguing for where ideology uh, emanates from. Um, it, but by doing that, then expanding how we understand ideology and and it's and how it might function in politics, policy, culture, society, right, a broad array of places. Um, so for instance, there's a chapter on grassroots ideology, GIs coming back from World War II, and how they, they had much uh, more complicated sensibilities about how the U.S. should operate in the world and very much more limited understandings of how U.S. power should be applied than we tend to think of, you know, service members, for
0: instance. So I want to ask one more method question before we get into the actual meat of the book, because this sure. is a question that I, I have also been noodling on for years. Um, and, and that is the question of causality. Um, I, I, I do think that there's a critique of historians, particularly from other social scientists that, that were not explicit about our methodology and particularly were not explicit about sort of developing causal relationships. You know, you, you could, you could chart an ideology. You could say it's consistent components are these eight ideas, these idea units, what have you, and then things happen in the world. So where do you come down on tracing that almost metaphysical gap between idea and and action in the world from a methodological perspective. Right. You know, one of the things that
1: stood out to me in in a lot of my work on the role of ideas in US foreign policy and American politics is how some other fields, social science fields, want a kind of one-to-one relationship between an idea and and its causal impact and outcome, right? And if they can't trace that, the argument follows that uh, ideas don't matter. Um, and I fundamentally disagree with that claim, um, based on a kind of ex post facto thinking that, uh, outcomes traced backwards to their core foundational idea is, uh, is a necessary part for that methodology and for understanding, you know, uh, roles of ideas and in, in different places. Um, and then there are key terms that are tacked onto that. Um, so, uh, <laughs> But how do, how do I do it? You know, I think, you know, it's a, it's a really important point. You know, part of it, uh, let's be honest, is trust, right? That we have looked at the sources, that we've done this work, um, that we've sort of killed ourselves trying to understand historical actors, groups, and institutions such that we have a level of confidence that we're getting it right. Not not perfect.
0: It's empathy. It's empathy. I feel people don't really appreciate that that the historian's craft above all is just trying to empathize with people who live in a, the the proverbial foreign country.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. You know, I think, or, you know, there's other ways to put it. Um, the famous biographer, uh, once put it, you know, it's as if you you need to understand your historical actors, if they just left the room, right. Where are they going? What are they doing? What's motivating them? Is it raining? Right. Did they just have a beer? Did they just have a fight? Whatever. Um, the, you know, so part of it is that, that project, right. Um, and, and, you know, and then I think the historical context is another key element of that sort of triangulating. So, you know, for me, uh, for instance, in making arguments about specific ideologies, one of the things that I often come up against is uh, wanting to create a kind of constellation of ideas that are the, core elements of of what's going on. So you might say in one given moment, a a certain set of ideas, a few particular ones, are what are most important in a broader ideology. Let's call it isolationism, something I've written a lot about, right? So in this particular moment, non-entanglement and neutrality are key elements of this. They're manifested in an argument for unilateralism, rejecting, for instance, the League of Nations. Uh, And therefore, we see that in the works of William Borah, the works of the sort of irreconcilables who are opposing the League of Nations. And so you've got this constellation. Now it's not static, right? And so in another moment, later in the 20s or in the 30s, you'll see other parts of that constellation being much more important. So for me, then you can make that claim and say, hey, Danny, hey, reader, right? Um, here's what, here's where I see the the main constituent ideas, this constellation of ideas, um, having play. You find this in the rhetoric, you find this in the policy they're proposing, you find this in their letters, you find this, you know, public, private, all that stuff, and in the broader community of thought. If you find all that, I feel like you can make a fairly strong causal argument. Can you do the one-to-one? Probably not. Should you do the one-to-one? Also, probably not, right? Uh, You know, I think that it's perfectly fine to to be somewhat cautious with that, um, and at the same time, spin that out. You know, I guess the the other element that animated this project and I think you hint hint at it here in methodologies So sure, my core assumption is that ideas and ideology matter. And one of the things that we start the book with is the Obama administration, which argued that, you know, that they would elevate pragmatism over ideology. Now, of course, pragmatism is a philosophical system. We could make an argument about whether or not it's an ideology, but in any case, it's it's a method. uh, And when applied, constitutes part of an ideology, I'd say. But, But that said, you know, it's very clear that because they tried to eschew ideology, they actually embraced it. A full set of ideological um, concerns, right? And the and and you can see this in how they thought how the Obama administration thought about Russia, for instance, or China. We, we could talk about those specifics. Um, so even anti-ideological projects, presidencies, and individuals seem to me to evidence a whole lot of ideology. Uh, ideas do matter, right? And you find this even in that eschewing of ideology. The fact that you know famous sort of Jamesian system of evaluating ideas and the con by the conduct that they dictate, right? right? Pragmatism is at work. So again, back, back around methodologically. Um, I think that it's really important to understand the historical actors and the groups, um, and then to try to be as historically contextual as possible. Here's, here's my question to you. I'll turn this back around. One of the things that I've struggled with, uh, and come up with my own, Um, views on is that we can, as historians, um, make an argument that uh, sort of ideological systems exist outside of their time, right? Can you have Marx without Marx? So what do you think about that uh, kind of methodological problem?
0: I think it depends on the particular ideology, and then you have to look into the context in which it which it is operated. So, like, um, I'm reading Bruce Cooklick's book on fascism, right, where he traces the use of fascism throughout 20th century American history. And in the U.S. context, it's basically he has this great line: "It's the equivalent of throwing a tomato, right? It's it's it's, it's an empty signifier to borrow the old language of post-structuralism and postmodernism, right? So, so it, yeah. it, it's so it's it's very dependent on context. Where, whereas you could say like let. Let's say, for example, a liberal tradition or liberalism or a socialist tradition, that has specific signifiers. right? There are things you can do to not be a liberal. When both FDR and you know Yui uh, Long are fascists, right? There's there's difference, right? You wouldn't necessarily yes. call them all liberals in the same way. So I think it's I think it's highly contextualized uh in terms of where I would fall on that question. But that's actually nice because this leads into what I wanted to ask about the sort of the question of the historian, which is do you want to talk for a second about ideological critique because I think this is this is sort of the substrata of all of the humanistic social sciences if you think history is a social science or the humanities that has really defined how we approach things since the 1960s right what what we imagine we're doing is not reinforcing a nationalist project but basically uncovering ideologies in order to effectively critique them and and the origin of that idea is in you know really deep in Marxism, but I think it became popular in the U.S. Academy due to the influence of the Frankfurt School, and sort of they're dealing with the the failure of social democracy in Germany. Why did the workers fight World War One? Why don't we have a socialist utopia? And the answer was ideology. We're going to expose and critique this ideology, which then gets affected, in, particularly in Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, today, we're, we're much less explicit as a, as a profession and as a discipline about what we're trying to do, right? I don't think, like, as in, in Schaefer in like the 1970s, you could imagine and someone saying, I'm critiquing this ideology, like a, a, a mm-hmm. Wisconsin school person, a revisionist. But we wouldn't do that today, right? It, there, there's something sort of like, um, there's got a, that approach has a bit of a stink on it, but nevertheless, this is kind of what we do. So what do you view this project as, as like metaphysically doing, historically doing? And then I want to get into the actual ideologies.
1: Yeah, well, uh, let me give you my own maybe slightly contrarian take on that, which is I see the origins of the sort of uh, ideology critique in the way that you were just describing it, actually, in some of the progressive intellectuals of the 1910s and into the 1920s um, in the U.S., but also in a kind of transatlantic context, who were deeply perplexed by what you said, right, you know, sort of flippantly. But but it actually, it was incredibly earth-shatteringly problematic that the proletariat fought this catastrophic war. Um, and they simply could not understand how the laboring classes didn't see more solidarity, just somewhat more solidarity. And so, you know, a, 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 one of the things that I write about in my book, Promise and Peril, and I've thought a lot about is Randolph Bourne, the great cultural critic, who died way before his time of the flu pandemic in 1918. Um, he has this essay when he's traveling as a fellowship student through Germany as it's militarizing. Uh, I think it's in Berlin. And, and he's talking about how shocked he is that the young people are rallying around this, you know know, when the last, the, the, what he had just been reading about uh, German intellectual life and German socialism was that they were not uh, aboard a patriotic, nationalistic kind of project. So he starts one of his famous essays, Transnational America, with saying something like, there's no more reverberatory effect in the world than the fact that that this war has come about uh, in this particular way. So so I don't know that that's very contrarian, but, but I see it as, I see it very much in this sort of intellectual world-shattering moment from 1914 to 1917. And then the U.S. gets in the war, and then that's another you know, way in which um, it becomes problematized through this kind of
0: hopeful project. Of, no, I think um, that's right. I yeah, think that's right. Yeah. I was coming from a way too much of a Europeanist perspective. They become melded yes. over the course of the mid-century period, I think, and in like John Dewey's at the New School. You know, there's meld I totally... Totally, you're totally right. There's, there, it's not just the Frankfurt School, which is actually kind of funny. I think ironically, I was doing that because on the right wing today, they always critique the Frankfurt School. And like you said, it's actually quite American in origin, you know, and and has, has a valence that almost transcends political boundaries. But sorry to interrupt. I totally just want to say on the record, I totally agree. Right.
1: Well, you know, and I and I study you know u s. thought more than European thought. so I'm more particularizing there. but you know, I think you know ideological criticism in general is an interesting thing to just touch on now as we're you know launching this conversation, right It's as a kind of method of rhetorical criticism. We, we, you're right. we don't see this from a lot of foreign relations scholars. We don't see this from many historians, frankly, you know, I mean, um, I've spent a lot of time, you know, in, in humanistic circles with lots of folks in different fields. And so I may be more um, infected by these kinds of methodologies than others. And some of us who do, you know, intellectual history, I think, are, are more prone to use theory, deploy theory self-consciously and um, explicitly than a lot of our colleagues in history, which is a criticism of history that comes from, you know, sort of literary critical circles and other things, right? But the, the other piece of that is, right, critiquing texts for the dominant ideology. Therein, right, and so we historians do unpack the dominant ideology in a text or in a moment, um, but we don't. What we don't tend to do quite as much is about, um, uh, you know, raising that in the way that you described, right? So that that we we aren't saying, hey, this this text reveals this ideology. We are critiquing, you know, that dominant ideology coming from the text. We are more like. Um, Doing the spade work to uncover it from the archives. And and there are, we do make arguments, of course, but I think, you know, one of the ways I would put it is just that historians don't tend to use their theories explicitly then to do that kind of work. And and ideology critique is a good example of this. It would have been, you know, what, you know, into the late 70s and the mid 80s, you would have had a kind of heyday of this across humanistic areas. And, and now you don't. I think one of the reasons people uh, have been appreciating this book, um, is that it says, Hey, let's focus on ideology. Let's, let's take ideology seriously. Let's not, uh, well, let's, um, let's start from the, that ground, that foundation, that ideas and ideology matter, and then see where they matter, how they matter and do in different contextual elements, sometimes in a critical way. So we see, you know, one of my favorite chapters is the first one about indigenous subjecthood, right? And that actually- This is know, an excellent yeah. chap.
0: Like I, when I remember hearing, I just want to highlight mm-hmm. this chapter. Yes. When I remember hearing it at the conference from which this volume emerged, I was like, this is excellent. Excellent stuff. People check it out.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So by again, Matthew Kruer, uh, who's a professor at the University of Chicago. Um, just thinking about, you know, uh, Pulling out of the sort of colonial era documents related to how indigenous peoples and and, and colonizers actually existed basically on the same kind of ideological plane in terms of their relationship to the crown. It's more complicated than that. I'm distilling it. But that that in fact, you can in pulling out actually that sort of rhetorical criticism from the era and then looking at how individuals related to the state, you find um, changing dominant ideologies. Right, you f- you actually find across the period that he he describes here before the U.S. is the U.S. before the Revolution, the ways in which inequality and racism are leveraged to then make Indigenous peoples different from um, their colonial sort of compeers in that moment, which they should have been. They should have existed according to the letter of the law and the ways that the texts were constructed on the same plane, and that Indigenous folks um, were were making claims based on that. So anyway, um, but the but my point there was just that that's a great chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters book, it starts us out uh, very much grounded in these kinds of questions. And yet what you don't see is Krueger pulling out saying, look, I'm critiquing the dominant ideology. This is not ideology critique. It's sort of ideological um, expose, perhaps. I don't know if that's uh, quite quite what I intend. What do you think?
0: Well, it's interesting because there, I think the, 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 the difference between now and the 60s and the 70s is that it's a professional managerial profession now. Right, it's it's there are different norms and social mores, right? It, it's a it's a profession, generally speaking, of of the bourgeoisie and the elite, which wasn't true when people come up uh, in in the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies. And there's much more combat there. I honestly think it's that it's the culture of the profession related ultimately to a style of engagement that is different than you know when you have all these kids from city college like Daniel Bell. You know, mm-hmm. coming coming up in the university, I think it's I think it's mostly that. And so once once a, a profession becomes literally more professionalized, you see less combat. And I think you've seen that over the course of the last forty years, and in, in our field in particular, you've read diplomatic history in the eighties. It is right. just not like it is <laughs> today. And there's also race and gendered uh, elements to that too. The profession is diversified, um, and so it's it's it, there's also elements related to that as well. And I wouldn't want to. Discount that, but I think it's it's oftentimes related to professional culture. You know, people mistakenly think history is a left-wing profession. It's like a centrist liberal profession, and it has centrist liberal norms, I would say.
1: I think that's fair, and I think that's also that, – uh, charting this path, one other thing that might be interesting to note here. It would seem, too, that the historical methods historians apply in that kind of centrist get-along sort of way um aren't as many aren't coming as much from critical theory literary studies cultural studies the american studies is is now outside the frame of it's been 40 years
0: since there's been a theoretical impact and 40 years at this point post-colonial theory had a little bit of an impact particularly Mm -hmm. uh, particularly if you studied south asia is my understanding but much less so in you know the 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 whole of the um discipline is my understanding. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, even, you know, even if you think about um, whiteness studies and, you know, um, a variety of other of sh- ways, shapes and sizes of, of slicing U.S. history, world history, international history, um, masculinity and gender, um, th- these are not complicated tools, right? We're not, um, we're not going there as much as historians, perhaps, you know, but I don't want to diminish the work that we're doing in that sense. It's just, it's just, Interesting, methodologically, as his, his, the historical field has moved away from some of the tools and techniques of the, the more humanistic um, fields – Interestingly, as it's more aligned in the public consciousness with a wishy-washy, you know, non-social science methodology, right? So,
0: I call it the return of the archive, and I think the uh, 08 yeah. crash was really important. I think that re-highlighted materiality. I mean, when I yeah. entered graduate school in 2007, it's funny to say labor history was dead. You know, like it just, people did yeah. not do it. Duke, where I got my PhD, was one of the only programs where there were still like a contingent of labor historians doing labor history. It's not true anymore. Labor history is back. History of capitalism is back um, in a real way. And I think that, that the the rise of those, the re-rise, the re-emergence of fields that were really at the core of the profession was directly linked to 08, uh, as was the return to the empiricism of the archives.
1: Yep, I think so, and it, you know the, it it reified a kind of cult of the archive at the expense of some of the analytical tools. I'd say,
0: I think that's right. So why don't we actually now turn into ideologies and ideology in U.S. foreign relations? And I think it might actually be a good sense to give listeners an understanding of. I don't. We don't need to go through the literature, but. What what were you what were you reacting to? And uh, you mentioned the Hunt book. That's a really might be a good place to start. And sort of his trans-historical forty thousand foot framework of William Appleman Williams. Uh, talk maybe about how ide- ide- ideology was historically studied, and then um, what came to the fore then, and what this volume does, and different ideologies that it highlights, and what that suggests.
1: Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot there. I'll try to be succinct. Um, the, you know, uh, informing this is a sort of intellectual historical turn in us foreign relations and arguably across us history. Um, this is something you've talked about in podcasts before. You know, I think, um, I come from a a very similar place to where you do, although I think you come from more of the European intellectual history tradition uh, launching into that. But, um, that said, you know, in the last roughly generation, um, there's, been a lot more attention to the history of ideas, uh, transmission and reception history, ideas crossing borders, um, different ways of even understanding what ideas are at play in different historical moments. Uh, it's not that they were absent in the past, right? In foreign relations history, ideas have always mattered. Just think about containment, 1947, and da, 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 George Uh, We've got a lot of Cold War stuff that's for quite a while focused on that. If you go farther back, you know, transatlantic exchanges of ideas and um, hemispheric ones. But that said, there's been a lot more attention, self conscious I think, you know, we've been talking disciplinarily, but one thing that's interesting is a lot of this came from the Society for U.S. Intellectual History, which was, came as much as anything from contingent faculty, part-time faculty, and other folks who were deeply invested in history of ideas and intellectual history in lots of domains and terrains. Um, I, I was one of them, and at the at that time I was finishing my PhD and, and then becoming a postdoc when this was launching about about the time you were just entering grad school 2008 2009 it's now a pretty flourishing historical society um, and, and you know there aren't a lot of jobs in that field but there's been a lot of interest in that you know, in foreign relations circles many books that have won major first and second book awards have dealt with the history of ideas in some form not always centrally so you know that's that's part of this conversation this this focus on ideology in this book doesn't come from nowhere it comes from in fact this efflorescence of, of scholarship and interest, right, even if even if it's unevenly spread across the academy, let's say. So, you know, I, I said Michael Hunt's book, 1987 book, um, Ideology in U.S. Foreign Policy, it was it was really informative for me. You know, I think that it makes some brilliant arguments that we, you know, in fact, directly attribute and, and include in the book, and it misses a whole lot of stuff. So the first of his main arguments is that in U.S. foreign relations history, national, uh, national mission is critical to understanding different ideologies over time. This, you know, some of what he's doing there comes out of a William Appleman Williams kind of framework uh, and critique. So it, it's this: the the Hunt take is that he's sympathetic to some of the new left moves of um, uh, of the late Cold War, um, but uh, not entirely. Uh, and so he wants to go back to an attention to ideas that pushes back somewhat against the kind of economic determinism, basically. That, that's how I would put it. But you can interpret this slightly differently because there's a lot going on in this book. Um, another piece of that puzzle that's crucial that I touched on before is the imposition of racial hierarchies, that, that racism on um, racial hierarchies and, and a so, sort of the development of social science ideas that justify visions of race and therefore justify policies at home and abroad is a big piece of that. And then a third element, which is interesting, that, that's the third main piece of the book, uh, of his book. That, that, the way I unpack it is that it's a deep-seated uh, kind of rejection of revolution, that the U.S. has this fascinating kind of revolutionary zeal that turns against and is preoccupied with revolution, right? And so one of the things we say in the in, in ideology book, in our, in our book, my book, that you contributed to is that um, that preoccupation you see all over the place across U.S. history. We, we see it in lots of the chapters. And, and it, it helps explain the sort of terrible problem of the U.S. not uh, recognizing Haiti. Uh, you know, it's it, the clear the clear ideological traveling companion to the U.S. would have been that first revolutionary democratic republic. But one, preoccupation with social revolutions, if that spills over, and two, racial hierarchy, help eliminate virtually any possibility of that ideologically, intellectually, and then you can track that through different people, positions, etc. So anyway, I'm trying to particularize some of these these big things. Um, one more so, thing, I think, Chris, yeah, yeah.
0: could you maybe just add the sure. open door imperialism aspect? Yeah. Because that's been so influential. I I would say the three you mentioned and the uh, Williams's Open Door imperialism are kind of the main ones that people focused on before, let's say, 1990. So do you mind just running through what he said there?
1: Yeah, right. So thinking about um, John Hay uh, in in the Open Door notes, this assertion of the U.S.'s – Co-equal status with the European powers to access uh, Chinese and Asian markets, um, and the ways in which then Williams and others in the Wisconsin School made the argument that that this was indicative of a kind of set of economic drivers and and economic assumptions uh, about the U.S.'s sort of world hegemonic role at this critical point, in the late nineteenth century turn of the twentieth century, when the U.S. is finally becoming is becoming a world power commercially and militarily, and so those drivers then help explain you know why. The Philippines doesn't become independent until after World War II, 1946, right? It helps the U.S. cling to the Philippines, even when it isn't a particularly useful um, territory. Uh, It it helps explain the abhorning base structures of an era when the U.S. was supposedly, you know, having limited um, interactions with the world um, because of the need for coaling stations and strategic facilities that then would, you know, aid and abet the American empire. Right uh, through its um, commercial forms, in this sense, um, you know, and then you know the other element of that moment, and in, in the open door notes moment that that Williams and others highlight, and I think they're exactly right, is there was this sort of. Um, deep fascination in, in the sort of political economy world of the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century with a sort of glut thesis that the U.S. was overproducing and that there weren't markets for these things. And whether or not that was true, and you really need to particularize on the moment there, the panic of 1893, you know, it seems to have been mostly resolved before 1898. In any case, that thinking really informs the whole next century. And that's what Williams and others others note, that this sense that the U.S. is going to be this manufacturing empire and it needs foreign markets more than anything else uh, and on its own terms.
0: I, I think that's a great uh, summary. And Williams in, is interesting in particular for people on the left because he really does meld a Marxist sensibility with ideological critique. And so it's a good way to see how traditionally people on the left have tried to um, – map the relationship between base and superstructure in an actual historical situation. Um, So, Chris, that was wonderful. Uh, Why don't, though, we, we go to your book now, and there's a couple of ways to do it. I, I really do want to talk about the the five sections because I think that's mm-hmm. probably the best way to get a holistic perspective of the book um, without delving too deeply into individual cases, but you could use the individual cases as you want. Um, but it might be best to start with where do you see this project departing from the classic studies um, or in particular... Where do you see the last 30 years of work departing from these uh, classic studies, of which your project is really an an almost apotheosis as opposed to a beginning of something?
1: Yeah. um, So, well, at its most basic level in the unit of analysis, we have different peoples and groups and different time periods. Um, so the Hunt book is sweeping um, and does go across U.S. history, but it, what it doesn't do is look at grassroots folks. It does not have any sustained analysis of women or people of color. Um, you know, it uh, it doesn't really have the attention to language and sort of tracking um, linguistic changes in their meaning over time. There's a great chapter I've sort of hinted at several times now by um, Ben Coates from Wake Forest on civilizational rhetoric in presidential language. And he tracks several shifts from a sort of um, projection of civilization to protection of civilization as a major shift going from the 19th century to the 20th century. You can and you hear that on the right these days, right? Protecting civilization. He sees that coming from emanating from you know uh, major politicians and presidents. So that's attention to language. Then there's an emotional turn, an affective turn that you see a little bit in this book, which is really fascinating. At the conference we talked about in the role of emotions. Um, it, there's a really good chapter here that a number of people have written about publicly um, by Andrew Preston from Cambridge um, that uh, talks about fear uh, as a driver of U.S. foreign relations. Fear as structuring national security questions. Um, now, fear itself isn't quite ideological, as he notes at the outset of the chapter, but fear can have ideological determinants, you might say, that, that fear as informing um, questions of national security uh, are maybe the best way to understand kind of post-World War II um, Cold War national security uh preoccupations. Uh think about duck and cover drills. Think about why more Americans were afraid of North Korea than South Koreans were just a few years ago. You know, whichever era you're looking at, you see fear as a kind of fundamental force there. We have some other provocative terms here in the in the book about liberty. Um, we've got some economic thinkers, right? So um one of the things that that you know a lot of the other literature doesn't do is kind of interweave gender and race with, you know, um economics, um a complicated sort of political economic theory. There's a good chapter by Mark Willem Palin on the Cobdenites and, and thinking about protectionism and how protectionist sort of ideologies have, have evolved over time, including like sort of emanating from across the political spectrum for, for very different kinds of reasons over time, which I think is, is very useful. So, you know, um, this, this is just some, I mean, it's a 22 chapters, a bunch of brilliant thinkers. Uh, all the chapters are about 6,000 words. Um, so, you know, you can read them before bed, you can assign them in classes. Like the whole goal here was to, to kind of distill some of the best insights from the archives, as well as kind of synthetic takes. Um, so for me, this is like this is a really great kind of methodology. I mean, I'm just, I'm proud of what you all did. You know, you wrote in it. Um, it's part, partly my conception, but, um, but you know, it was the authors who, who made this possible. So that's some of it. I mean, we divide it into five sections and I'll just sort of quickly say what those are since, since you're hinting at this. So I, Ideologies and the people is sort of how we start it. And um, we end it with ideologies and progress. And that's what you talk about. Maybe we could talk a little bit about your chapter, if you don't mind me turning the tables on you again, kind of progressive ideas about Rand and, and about sort of stru- structuring knowledge um, in the early Cold War and what that had to do. But anyway, that's what so we end with progress. But we then the second part is on power, which you, you sort of can't write about ideology without hitting on power. And some of the chapters could fit in different areas. Um, Ideology to the International is another piece. And I want to highlight one thing that's just fascinating. And I'm still trying to think about this. And I bet listeners will be interested. So the first chapter in there is by a scholar named Emily Conroy Crutz, who's at Michigan State. And she focuses on mission literature aimed to children in the late 19th century, and the kind of generational dimensions of ideological construction. Um, For me, a takeaway there, this isn't exactly hers, but for me, the children of those missionaries in the late 19th century, a great many of them, as we know, um, become diplomats, forming the diplomatic core of the American century. Their cultural knowledge, their cross-cultural awareness, their linguistic skills, their assumptions about sort of U.S. world leadership, right, and the kind of missionary project um, become essential for how, you know, a lot of those kids then become leaders, uh, you know, a building what we think of as a 20th century U.S. state. Um, but her focus on this sort of the ways in which mission literature aimed to inculcate in young people a set of ideological values about the U.S.'s superiority, but sometimes relativistic values about how people at home aren't living up to their ideals either is really fascinating and, and useful. And I think just generally in the literature on ideology, you haven't seen much on generations which is which is something i'm still thinking about thinking through and that chapter helped plant some seeds that 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 i think are really important some children right you know as another source base um and you know I, and i could go on but i know you talked on the podcast about this before but daniel Imoir has a great chapter that i just love on george lucas and, and star wars and, and his antipathy to modernization theory in vietnam as another way of sort of trying to shape essentially future generations smuggling in this this you know pretty profound critique of us foreign relations foreign policy um into you know one of the most iconic uh sort of series in in i don't know us cultural production in the last
0: half century uh, or more that's really helpful. I, I I think it might actually be useful to to run through each of the sections, and you could just talk a little bit about whatever elements of uh, of them that came together or larger themes that you emerged. And I before we do that, though, I do, I do want to say that I thought it was clever and interesting that the book is titled "Ideology in U.S. Foreign Relations," but the subsections, of course, are each titled into plural ideologies and mm-hmm. X or Y or of X or Y. Yeah. Um, and I I think that's effective because in the in the title of the book, you're able to express that this is a coherent category that you're able to use. And and and, but to show that in actual historical practice, it's approached in different ways at different moments. I just want to say that that was clever. So why don't we just start at the beginning? A good place to start always, which is part one: ideologies and the people. So what did you see? Why organize things in this way? What were you trying to do here methodologically?
1: Well. Um
0: you know, or content-wise, uh, not even methodologically. For sure, I yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, one thing I'll say is a format that I like, if any, anybody's thinking about this, is attempting to gather people at the outset. So, you know, I had you out um, to Corvallis Uh, Where where we had all the authors uh, draft authors talking to each other about what the structure of a book like this should be. So you know, I I did not think the many years that I thought about a book on this project, I did not think I should be the sole author of it or that I could co-author it. I thought that it needed to rely on a whole lot of different um, folks from with different scholarly um, areas of focus, uh, different levels of their careers, right? Different different orientations at, at, at different times. So you know, I want to give credit where credit is due. My uh, co-editor David Milne was a big part of this structure. And so were all the authors. So, you know, this didn't come out of nowhere. We originally had sort of three sections we were thinking and and, we, and it became five. All right. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to bore listeners, but I also want to get into the depth of it because it's really fascinating. So we divided into f- these five sections sort of people, power, international, democracy, and progress. Um, and the thinking of the first set was that, um, that we needed to start out one, we need to start out at the beginning before the American revolution so that's where we start with this great chapter on indigenous subjecthood um and how it functioned, kind of as a lever to gain power, right? Agency in a col- colonial state structure that that the colonizers used subjecthood against the colonized, basically, right? So we start with that. Hey, look at this, um, you know. And I, and I might even say <laughs> we start before that, in the introduction, and say, look, here's a, a presidency accused of doing too much, the Bush administration, and being too ideological, and here's the Obama administration, a presidency accused of doing arguably too little and being non-ideological. They both have ideology at, at 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 stake in their presidencies. So let's, so if, if that's true in the near past, let's go all the way back. And then we start, um, there, you know, then so then um, we talk about the, the other chapters there with this question of civilization. Um, I think, you know, uh, Michaela Honicky Moore, uh, who's, a, who's a scholar at Iowa, who, whose work I really love, and who's really, I think, going to produce a, a fantastic book thinking about grassroots um, ideas and ideology about foreign policy. Um, she, she has a chapter in there on nationalism and U.S. foreign policy as coming from um, the, the grassroots. What did GIs say? What did regular citizens say about foreign policy? And, and can we call Call what their conceptions as richly ideological as those of people in the National Security Council, for instance. That's what she raises as stakes of this. And you know why do I think that's important? Just in public discourse today, uh, and, and I've heard you deal with this a little bit on the podcast. You know, so often when we see public polling about foreign relations it diminishes what people know. Now we know Americans don't know much about geography. We know we could, we could make a case for why Americans are woefully inadequate on their knowledge of the world. But it turns out that when you look, you know, in the archives and you look at a whole lot of folks, they have much regular individuals have much more robust understandings of the U.S.'s role in the world, then we tend to give them credit for. And that sort of taking an elitist sort of poo-poo attitude towards regular individuals is a deep problem because these ideologies inform, for instance, why Americans uh, have an enduring fascination with self-sufficiency, which can be tapped into by Trumpists, for instance, and be tapped into by this you know sort of quasi-populist right. It might be at the top level, very elitist, but at a core level, these animating ideas go back to Washington and Jefferson. and And they're quite robust if they may not be what you and I would write in a book, but they're awfully robust when you look at letters and memoirs and other things. So anyway, I think Michaela Honicky Moore's chapter really brings up something about foreign policies, ideologies emanating from the people themselves quite literally, right? So there's also, there's also a chapter there on women's international thought, which is great. And, you know, I don't want to go through sort of listing all the chapters, but the sort of way that we structured each of the sections is the beginning and the end are kind of more synthetic generally. And the middle is uh, more archival and specific generally. Um, so that you get like a cohesive whole to each of these packages of ideology, uh, ideologies, um, and, and the people in that section. Um, thinking about the, the ones on power that's where you start with economics. I think, you know, one that stood out to me when I've been doing um, some talks about the book um, is a chapter by Nick Guy. It's the sixth in the book. It's about John Quincy Adams. Um, we tend to think about John Quincy Adams' as this in his later years, the earlier years, 1823, you're helping write the Monroe Doctrine. You know, that seems really formative in foreign policy circles and ideology. I've written a lot about that. Uh, this, this abolitionist later in his career. But but it starts with this Interesting position where about 1841, um, Adams is defending the British Empire in the context of the Opium Wars and saying the U.S. should be like the British in its sort of projections of power. We need to honor that. So you know he he has several takeaways there, and I kind of don't want to scoop his chapter; it's quite good. But you know, the the point being, even some of these old guard abolitionists who might be heroes on the left in some ways um, are not without their ideological blinders, you might say. And then why did why did he spin that out in the context of the 1840s? What else was going on ideologically in that moment, and politically, geopolit- geopolitically? The, also, in that section, you get um, you get a great chapter by Matt Carp on the Republican Party. Um, and anti-slavery, and you know, um, he's written a lot about the sort of uh, foreign policy monopoly that the slave power had in the U.S. in the first half of the 19th century, uh, and the ways in which the Republican Party had to orient its anti-slavery goals um, in that same era. Right, that that they very much are antagonistic to the slave power, which is dominating, you know, um, cabinet appointments and all sorts of other positions. Um, And then we we sort of conclude that moving up more rapidly through the chronology with Andrew Preston's thought on the fear elements. Um, You know, I could go through a bit more and I'll give you a a sort of more broad brush. So when thinking about the international, that's when we get to this third section. That's when we get to the the generational uh, components and the mission movement and the missionaries. Um, I think uh, one of the interesting other elements at at work there is a there's a chapter by Brandy Thomas-Wells. on, uh, on a particular, uh, home economics professor, Flemy Kittredge, uh, and so a sort of view of the role of people of color in doing Uh, what you might call like track two diplomacy is what we would call it now, right? Being both within and outside formal channels of diplomacy um, and having uh, multiple kinds of conflicted orientations towards the state that, that of course, the U.S., you know, as we know from lots of other literature has its uh, racial dimension, racist politics and policies at home. And yet, you know, uh, Black Americans who are out working for the U.S. abroad need to both recognize that and then also often shape that in their conversations with other nations and groups to achieve the sorts of ends that they want in their careers and also often in terms of racial egalitarian formation. So it's, that's a, that's a good chapter there of thinking about particularizing to one life, one set of goals. And, and what she says, I think of myself as an international citizen, you know, that, that she's both a citizen of the, of the globe, um, but also as an, as an American interacting with the international world, uh, so with sort of multi, multiple kinds of citizenships, which is also reminiscent of, of, of other figures uh, historically who made these kinds of arguments, like Bourne, arguing that there should be multiple kinds of citizenships for um, for different sexualities, for different religious groups, that, that a, a more holistic way of thinking about the relations between peoples and nations should be about multiple overlapping kinds of citizens. Um, so there's also a great chapter on just war theory. Uh, you can't have, you can't do this without that by Ray Haberski. You know, one, one of the ones that I haven't touched on yet, um, is by Penny von Eschen, which I like a lot. Uh, and she has a recent book out now also, um, on nostalgia and the end of the Cold War. Uh, and her, her chapter is about this. So the road's not taken in 1989. Uh, that there was this moment when U.S. foreign relations pivoted to the new world order kinds of concepts under um, George H.W. Bush, but it didn't have to be that way. Um, and so she tracks some of the alternatives in sort of international thought and how that inflected uh, kind of American possibilities. You look, you look poised and ready to say something. <laughs>
0: I was just wondering if yeah. you could um, – because Penny's chapter is in the, the democracy one, and so that's one I'm particularly right. interested in. So I was just wondering um, if you could maybe talk about that theme, and, and did, you, did you notice any trends emerging when you were putting these together?
1: Yeah, so the democracy theme um, – yeah, so that that was one – actually, I think a lot of the chapters could have fit in because so many of them you – know, one of the one of the ways in which uh, – one of the through lines of the book is is co- contestations over the vision of democracy, that, that American – the history of ideology um, in the U S is about a battle over what it means to have a democracy in this country. Um, and, and in, in different eras and different ways, depending on your focus um, you wind up with different orientations. So, but democracy is really at stake in so much of this. Um, so the, as we shift to that um, democratic section, uh, the it starts actually with freedom. It starts with a chapter, um, I believe, with by Jeremy Surrey, if, if I'm right, um, uh, and and I what he call he he calls it something like that. Um, the the freedom the base alcohol for Americans um that changes over time um that mixes well with some things and not with others and so he tracks three kinds of freedom and three moments at which freedom operates um but the, but the ideologies of democracy i think that you know as i was sort of hinting at there's this often when we teach and we write about this, there's a there's a real problem of rhetoric and reality when you when you think about democracy and um, the ideological const- constructs of the U.S. Right, you know, you can think about the U.S.'s um, Cold War foreign policy, you know, overturning lawfully elected governments in Guatemala and Iran. We could go on a long list, right? You know, and yet claiming that that was for uh, freedom and protection of democracy, make the world safe for democracy. Wilson. We could make have a long list here. So this this sort of Core tension of democracy as an ideology and the reality of the US as having, you know, at best an imperfect democracy, if not an utterly flawed and deeply problematic one worthy of a postmortem, right? So, you know, you can, you can go back and forth um, between those. And, and I think that's, um, that's a key element of these chapters of freedom. Um, thinking about the roads not taken with Penny Von Eschen, Thinking about um, uh, you know, there's a chapter by Melanie McAllister on um, churches and American Jews, and thinking about the um, Nigeria-Biafra War, um, which was something I hadn't thought about in this context at all. And that's some of her new work. Uh, we've also got a chapter in there on immigration. It, it's a um, for me, I guess what unites that is this unwieldy word, which I haven't come up with an alternative to. It's, in, it's there in the introduction, unfortunately, and sometimes David Milne would be mocking me right now. If I'm going to say it anyway. Intermestic uh this this intersection be- between the international and domestic um and the and the ideologies and democracy section is all, is all about that and a lot of the book is too that you simply can't disentangle foreign relations from um, domestic policy and politics domestic society itself um and so that's a that's a core tension in the book and it's absolutely you know um critical to understanding this section here on, on ideologies and democracy. And then we get to the last section, which was just the one that that you wrote in on ideologies of progress. Jay Sexton begins it. One of the things I really like about this and and the whole rest of the book is that though folks who come to it probably are most interested in the 20th century or even the 21st century, um, we have a lot on the – 18th and 19th centuries. And, and Jay Saxon's chapter that begins the ideologies of progress talks about capital and immigration in the Civil War era. And in particular, one of the things he talks uh, a lot about is that it took foreign capital to make the U.S. the kind of um, incredibly strong power that it becomes at the end of the 19th into the 20th century. And it took foreign human beings, these immigrants, to be a big part of that, even in this um, incredibly um, fraught set of racial dimensions dynamics uh, of the time. Um, and um, he, he unpacks the fact that there are competing ideologies within uh, some of the same sorts of concepts about um, how the capital should be applied, uh, how the American economy should run. Um, he it's a really useful way of thinking about um, what progress might mean and competing visions and versions of progress um, in the 19th century. Just sort of set up then what's to come um, in the chapters that follow, uh, um, which which push us to, to yours and thinking about uh, kind of uh, progressive um, air power, uh, which was something I, I both knew about and, and didn't know that much about and Rand. Ran. So I'd be curious if, if you would be willing to share with us a little bit about how you Uh, think about the sort of strands of progressivism and national security and and their intersection in the kind of formation of Rand during and following the Second World War? Sure, I mean, I
0: think it's it's kind of ironic, but uh, more so than most other American institutions, I think the American military is a capital P progressive institution, literally informed by the ideology of the late 19th and 20th centuries, which many of us today would critique as naive, but uh, but, yes. but but it, but has certainly embraced just basically the notion that technologies, um, applied scientific knowledge, rational thinking, rational strategy will be able to effectively, if not end war, mitigate its effects and attenuate its effects, both in terms of live lives lost and money spent. Um, And I think this, if we were to define an American way of war, you know, that Russell Weigley would talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, in his book, The American Way of War, he would say it was massing, if I recall correctly, it's massing forces at particular points, I would say over the course of the 20th century, due to the progressive movement. Um, And particularly due to the, I I think the the critical moment was really the advent of the atomic bomb. I think it was an open question until the atomic bomb was dropped. and was viewed as being, one, um, war ending. It had a strategic purpose and two, humane. Uh, I I think this is hard for people to appreciate, but the atom bomb was initially read by U.S. air officials and and many elites within the U.S. government as being humane because it didn't require a land invasion and it ended the war in a quote unquote, that proverbial blink of an eye. And I think this uh, ideology of progress has informed American war. And, and I think, you know, two other big moments that I would add to the story that I tell, which was at the advent of the Rand Corporation was to bring scientific knowledge to bear on war to make it more humane and rational. I think you see the advent of the all-volunteer force in the early 1970s, a demassification of war, and the emergence of drones, which is basically a robot war, i.e. war that's less expensive, both in terms of American lives lost and, and to some degree, money spent, even though the particular structure of our political economy might not make that be the case. And so that's essentially the argument that I'm making, that that Uh, On a specific level, Rand reflected this more general approach to war that has really defined uh, the United States' approach to the problem.
1: I love that. You know, and I think just zooming it out for another kind of take, right? If you think about one of the core precepts of progressivism being the, the idealistic hope that human institutions are perfectible. Um, that they, we can refine them such that they can do the be- have the best possible outcomes. It's interesting to think about the air force in this in this way, but you can think about lots of other kinds of institutions. this sort of oxymoronic concepts about the more humane war, the, the problem that they're confronted with in the Second World War, strategic bombing, you know, becomes carpet bombing in, in the European theater, but then they have the a- atomic weapons to, to point to a- as this more humane, targeted kind of, of set of w- weapons. At the same time, that they're a boring criti- ethical critique of that. The, that's Of concerns, and and then fast forwarding it, you know, the same sorts of progressive inflections about the ways in which drone strikes can be made um, more humane, more lawful, even, right? We could and we could push that. We could think about, you know, um, Sam Moyne's work and other things, whether or not what what we should think about human rights and humanity in these kinds of ways. But, you know, that's this is to my eye, to my orientation, unpacking that core set of progressive ideas as they're inflected in the, you know, foundational strategic thought of Rand and other groups in the Cold War is fascinating and so important. And you don't get to that if you tell other kinds of stories, right? Uh, An institutional history of that might not focus so much on some of those ideas. It could, uh, but it might not.
0: And Chris, I wanted to raise a question that I thought about earlier, but as we're approaching the end, I'm curious, what do you think? Um, It is interesting that there's a turn to ideology in the moment of American first unilateral hegemony, and now I would say it's just hegemony, a multilateral hegemony. I don't know, kind of a new term. But it seems like as the American empire is less and less in question, that the bases – like the we did a drawdown of the Cold War, but we still have the hundreds of bases. We're still spending an enormous amount. That historians have turned to ideas – in order to try to explain a material structure that essentially looks unmovable.
1: Yeah, I mean, p- part of this turn, I think, if you track it to the work that was developed in the last few, last generation roughly comes out of 9 11. I think we were asking different questions and historians were asking different questions in the 90s. Um, there were questions that were related to that, unipolar moment, that sort of thing. Um, but It's ideology in an international setting as well. So, you know, if you think about the kind of claim that George Bush made, you know, the question he asked in one of his speeches, why do they hate us? And then attempted to explain it by explaining that they hate our freedom, right? In this us and them binary system. But it was actually more complicated than that. It's a vision that goes back to kind of democracy promotion ideals, goes back to, you know, mission. I mean, our book unpacks this, right? The the contested visions of the US's role in the world. I mean, you know, when I teach this in a religion and US foreign relations class, we sometimes start with city on a hill and we interpret it every which way, all 360 degrees, right? Crusader, exemplar, uh, all the other ways in which a city on the hill might operate, you know, Religiously, the- theologically, but also operationally, you know, interacting with different peoples and groups culturally, all that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I think it's it, you know it, it is interesting that what we haven't seen is a strong return to a kind of econ- economic determinist lens, right? We have all the we have all this history of capitalism right now. We're tracking it through especially slave systems. We, we've got it in the carceral state. We've got it in all kinds of forms that are very important in our current moment. We have not seen a return to Williams quite. So I wonder where that is. You know, that's part of the story that we're telling in this book, but it's a, it's a fairly minor one. And then one other element that I think is interesting uh, based on the point that you raised. In about 2001, 2002, 2003, people were yelling a lot about, you know, is the US like Rome? Right? Is this the end of the empire? Should we even talk about the US as an empire? One of the things that came out of this conference and the book is that, you know, we almost all take it for granted that the US in some way, shape, or form historically, and in terms of the ideologies that have guided and shaped US foreign relations, has been imperial. Where historians don't seem very interested in that debate. You know, we've got Daniel Mora's book, how to hide an empire, but it's not really about whether or not the U S is an empire per se. It's about all those forms and shapes right over time.
0: And I just have to say, like there's so many times like a political scientist wants to fight about it. And I'm like, I don't care. It is an empire. Like I'm not going to, I mean, because basically I think that it comes down to, to empire has an effective dimension, right? Which people, some people are just going to agree with or not agree with. Right. And then you start basically arguing over the checklist of empire or hegemony and like, who cares? That's not a very interesting question to me. Fundamentally, it's real. That's truly a semantic debate because this is purely talking in a- academic terms. No one in public is going to say the United States is an empire. So you're just talking. And, and, and yeah. so I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a very important debate.
1: Yeah, I agree. But I also think that um, historians have moved. Have, have, not only is that, I don't think I was ever that interested in it. Uh, idly, maybe ba- way back, but not, not anymore. But yeah, I, I never think one really was. That, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, but one thing that B- Van Cote says in his chapter, and it's where we end in our conclusion, which is maybe a good place for us to be contemplating here at the end of this conversation, is that um, ide- empires require ideologies, it seems, historically and, you know, all the way up through the present. And as you were noting, this kind of, is this a multilateral hegemony? Is that possible? <laughs> right. Um, but, but certainly one reason we're attuned to the ideologies today is that we, we're seeing all kinds of somewhat unexpected configurations, It's a kind of populism led by elite people who went to elite universities who kind of want to destroy American democracy such as it exists today, Um, don't really have strongly articulated foreign policy views per se. They keep shifting. So they're not like the old conservatives who knew exactly how the world should be shaped in in the 20th century. People I've studied and I think really cared about those ideas were were ready to sort of die for them, their vision of what a a U.S.-led world order would look like. I think there's a lot of conservatives today who, who are much more interested in their own power so that's what I was about to say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I'm writing a big piece on Fukuyama and the end of history right now. And I think that Fukuyama is right for the wrong reasons. There there hasn't been a challenger to liberalism really to emerge, I would say. Um But it's not because liberalism is the greatest idea and everyone recognizes it as such, or the only possible, he doesn't say it's a great idea, the only possible form of governance. It's just because capitalism is so totally one. That there's just like, there's everyone is unconsciously just dealing with that reality. People aren't arguing over even how to tame capitalism or how to use it for your ends, which is what ideology does. People are just arguing how to take the most from it, which I just wanted to say, I think that is a reflection of the right today. People, they're not... There, none of those people are going to die for liberalism or die for their version of 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 liberal, of right wing liberalism, which I would say is accurately what most people on the right are. I think they have the anti elitist politics embedded in liberalism, the hyper free market, sort of this American form of liberalism. I don't think any of them would die for it. So, in some sense, we're almost entering a post ideological age in that. The great struggles of the 19th and 20th centuries over how to organize a new form of political economy have been settled, but now we don't actually control the object. We don't control capitalism anymore.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I guess the only thing I would add there is, I'm thinking in the pandemic context, I think some folks' uh, understanding of the world they live in has been fractured. That. From supply chains to work from home to essential workers being dispensable workers, um, some things have been made visible that were maybe a little less visible. I don't know where that will go, and I don't, I'm not being optimistic or ho- really hopeful well, about
0: I, that, I, I think just, just the, I, a, a more visible to the bourgeoisie, the people who are living those lives uh, are already – they they experience it, and these are the people who don't vote. You know, for a lot of you know reasons, because they've accurately understood that politics doesn't. The form of our political system, I think, is does not reflect any form of democratic will. I don't think we live in an effective democracy. I think we live in a procedural democracy at best, and that's what is being attacked right now, the very procedures of democracy. But if you look at the contours of the American state as they develop since World War II, these are not systems that are, are in control of any Demos, that any Demos has any control over, I would say. And I think increasingly, even elites don't really have control over it, which is why someone like Elon Musk or someone like Jeff Bezos wants to go to Mars, because they can't imagine themselves as actually controlling the system in a way that a Rockefeller or a J.P. Morgan, and as you know, speaking of early financial crises, a J.P. Morgan did lose literally save the economy. I don't think that's possible in the same way anymore.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, the, well, the American economy is so much smaller uh, than, right? When precisely intervenes, but yes. Exactly. Yeah. That's the
0: point. Right. Exactly. A little bit now like, it is out of our control.
1: Yeah. A little bit like democratic theory, right? That the democracies also can have more uh, functional value for the demos and the demos have more say in it at smaller scale. You know, I right. know And this I goes into questions
0: that, of... An, but, yeah, increasing complexification, right? What is the right. increase? And this is a problem I think was, was viewed most accurately in the progressive era because they're literally seeing the society become complex at like a wild rate. It's just our experience now. So it's hard to even realize quite how complex and out of control it is. And I think that's very, very different. But Chris, we've been going a while. I wanted to give you, do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you want to add?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think. Well, we've really done a good job of, of exploring a lot of the book. You know, um, I suppose one thing I haven't said yet, we haven't said yet, is one of the core assumptions about ideology is that it can involve the unexplored elements of individuals and groups' ideological convictions. And part of where we're landing now is the fact that we live in this perhaps less ideological moment um, – but we do have these ideologies that are shaping the world we live in, that are shaping foreign policies, that are shaping domestic politics, and and the ways in which we relate to them. And so, you know, the I think part of this project is also pointing out how... One of the things that history can do so well that we can look to people who lived long before us and get a better sense of their lived experience the ideas that they met ma- that matter to them their assumptions the core principles and the ways that they then advocated for particular outcomes or not debated them rejected them um And then use that, I think, at its its best to understand ourselves a bit more, right, to to try to do that introspective work. You know, what are my core assumptions about liberal democracy? What are my core assumptions about U.S. foreign policy and drone policy or about capitalism Um, or about the pandemic and public health, totalitarianism, the debate over fascism? However you want to think about it. Um, And so for me, that's one of the things that's so important about this this kind of project this way of thinking being a historian um, and then the methodology here right so that w- that we started with in some ways that you don't have to have this direct causal relationship to chart the ways in which ideologies shape, outcomes um and that that's something i'm deeply you know invested in and i think one of the reasons that the book has been getting some positive attention and being taught in some classes is that um it does that without um with without forcing you into a corner it lets you encounter the different ideologies and ideological actors and ideas more on their own terms
0: Chris McKnight-Nichols, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone go out and purchase this book. I promise you, if you're interested in ideas or U.S. foreign relations, you won't be disappointed.
1: I promise you too, and thanks so much. It's great chatting with you. today. you. <laughs>